Hey, my friends, it's Scott Bridwell. I'm back. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you've never subscribed before, be sure to subscribe and share this with your friends. I've been trying to get this podcast for a while. Uh, She's a very busy woman. She's written a book. She's got three children. They run a farm. Uh, Very accomplished. She's got a doctorate degree. We talked a little bit about that as well. But we finally scheduled some time today. And I went to her house. It's the first time I ever recorded a podcast at somebody's house. And her kids are there. So <clears throat> if you hear in the background a bunch of kids and you hear screaming and you hear, well, you know what? We're just sitting at a kitchen table in somebody's home just talking. And that I absolutely love. She's a little apologetic at first. But I'm like, no, 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 no. I love this. My podcasts are unedited and they're raw and they're real because I want people to just feel like they can just sit down and be part of the conversation with us. And that's what she did. So who is she? Her name is Dr. Sarah Philpott from Inglewood, Tennessee. She's got a doctorate degree in philosophy of education from the University of Tennessee. She, uh, how I got introduced to her was a year ago today, actually. A year ago today, I met her at a book signing. She just released a book called Loved Baby. And Loved Baby is a 31-day devotional. It's a Christian devotional. For women who's experienced pregnancy loss, well, that immediately drew near to me, and you'll understand why later in the podcast when I share some of my story of what my then-wife and I went through when we had our own pregnancy loss, and I was just intrigued by her, and we just started sitting down and talking, and ironically, at that time, I told her, I said, I've been thinking about doing this podcast thing, and she was one of the early people who just really, really encouraged me to do this, and uh, that really made it special for me that she joined in on the podcast. Um, she does have a website. I'm going to link to all that in the show notes. And I hope you sign up. I hope you subscribe to her. I hope you follow her. And I hope you buy this book. It's a it's a really good book. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to the lovely, the wonderful, the very educated and great mother, Dr. Sarah Philpott. I have, I've always wanted to be in radio. You'd be good at that. I always thought I would. My, uh, my uncle Larry used to. What's that radio station in Inglewood? Uh, I didn't know we had a radio station in Inglewood. There was, there was. Uh, you know where the uh, the train track used to cross thirty nine, and it's now that Eureka Trail. Yes. There was a little building right there to the right that had a radio station. Oh. Right, and so I was living, I wasn't living, my grandmother was alive, so I was less than five years old, and uh, he was a DJ out there, and I used to always love that, but now he went on up to, uh, after him and my aunt, no, him and my aunt moved up to Illinois, he was a station manager up in Kankakee for a lot of radio stations, and now he's in Crescent City, but one of my favorite memories was I was in Chicago one time, because they were up there, and uh, he had a... uh, He took me in the radio station and gave me Paul Simon's uh, album, Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes. I was 10 years old. I still remember that. Hey, I got Sarah. Was it Doc? It's Dr. Sarah Philpott. Nobody calls me that, though. Why? Because I (laughs) am not in any environment where (laughs) Dr. Sarah Philpott works. So what's your doctorate degree in? It's a doctor of philosophy in um, degree in education. Philosophy. Yes. Philosophy of education. Yes. 
Okay. But with teacher education, so I. I see it just so funny. We're at our house. I'm recording on the Philpot farm. You are with children all around. Get children <laughs> and play toys and TVs going on. I like it though. So Doctor Philosophy in Education. So are you studying like Socrates and all those guys, or is it something totally different? We did. We studied a little bit of everything. We studied the great philosophers. We studied the philosophy of education, and then really a lot of the pragmatics of how the best practices of teaching. So when I got the degree, I thought that I was going to go work in higher education and teach teachers how to teach. Yeah. And I got into it and loved the research aspect of it more than anything. So have you ever taught? Yes. I used to be a teacher in Athens City Schools. Oh. I taught third grade. I taught sixth grade. And I did teach at, in college for a while at the University of Tennessee as well. What were you teaching there? I was teaching teachers how to teach. Teaching teachers yes. how to teach. Yes. <laughs> well, that's, that's good, doing philosophy of teaching. What gets you down that route? I mean, you're young, mm-hmm. so what gets you... And to achieve a doctorate degree is a pretty big deal. So is it a PhD? It is. It's a PhD. So it's a terminal degree. It's a terminal degree. And I just always loved education. I loved school. I still love school. I love learning. And so I went to Tennessee Wesleyan College. Hey, Sophie. My five-year-old sitting beside us. And you're not going to get any cake tonight unless you can sit quietly. Okay? Okay. So that means, your, that means your hand's in your lap, too, okay? <laughs> yeah, so I went to Tennessee Wesleyan College and couldn't really decide what I wanted to do in life, so I got a degree in history and English and also added on my teaching certificate. And this is this is a disaster, this Scott. Is Beckham. This is life. You got the life. <laughs> I got the live life, but I love it. Um, would you get And then I instantly got hired with Athens City Schools, where I taught sixth grade, and then I moved to third grade after that, and just kept getting encouraged from lots of different folks to pursue like a master's degree and an EDS, and I did all that while I was working, and the next step was a PhD, and I applied, and they offered to let me work there, and they would pay for my school, they would give me insurance, and um, all I had to do was say yes. So, so your I did. dissertation? Yes, my dissertation was so much fun. I was surrounded by all of these students who would sit around literally going, hmm, hmm, all the time and have like these big high ideas. And I roll up and say, I want to do my dissertation on the American Girl series. <laughs> So I investigated, I wanted to see if what historical fiction does to readers does it make them inquire more about history and specifically was the american girl series was it just some you know thing about fancy dolls that were expensive or if little girls and boys who were reading the series actually were acquiring knowledge so i went into a fifth grade classroom or fourth grade i can't remember i've got children running around and i started asking um, and we read the stories together and they did they had so many questions about history, and it really spurred their interest in the time period they were reading. Well, I know my daughter read it, and we got her the American Doll doll, I think. That's the one that you send your picture of your kid off, and they make a... I think they do that now, too. At the time when I was growing up, the American Girl series was solely based upon 
historical figures, and now it's more current. There's a toddler on the table, Scott. <laughs> I know. I I uh, I can't remember my, if Kaylee read those or not. She just read so much. Somebody asked me one time, when did your kids start reading? I honestly don't know. Uh, I My kids always had books, mm-hmm. and we always read to them. Yes. And even... They would just sit and look through them because, you know, they had picture books and stuff like that. But at what point she or he both started comprehending the sentence structure and the words, I don't know. And you ask them, they're like, I've just always read. Yes. So I think that's important. I know some people say, well, my kid didn't learn to read until they were like first grade or second grade. But one funny story, my mom's dad, when he was alive, uh, was sitting at the sitting in the living room. We came down from Kentucky. I was in college. We come down from Kentucky one day to visit. And uh, Kaylee, probably about four years old, climbs up in his lap. She's like, Papa, will you read to me? Well, he was illiterate. He couldn't read. And he goes, Sis, I can't read, but I'll tell you what I think the pictures are saying. So he flipped through this book telling her a story based on these pictures. And then she goes, okay, my turn. So she got it, and she read the book. Whether she read it or had it memorized, I don't know. Then she grabbed another book. Okay, your turn. And so they went back and forth. Wow. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. That is so cool. And that's how kids and adults alike acquire that literacy. Just providing them good books. Just, Just having books. a house with books all around. I know. Uh, Kaylee, when I was in college, I remember I was studying. I was actually studying systematic theology that day. And um, I was sitting in the living room with my book, reading systematic theology, which is absolutely boring. And uh, she comes up, read to me, Daddy, and gets in my lap. And I'm like, oh, I got to, okay. So I'm reading her this systematic theology book. <laughs> and that's when it, it dawned on me, they don't care what you're reading to them. They just want to hear that voice. They want to be close. They want to be read to. Yes. And so if you're out there thinking, well, I don't know what to read to my kids, just read them the newspaper. They don't care. They don't care. My mom jokes that, we've, we, I grew up in a household of books, but my mom jokes that, when, even when we were in the womb and when we were babies, um, she would read to us. And yeah. one day I asked her what she would read to us. And she said, oh, my trashy romance novels. <laughs> she said, I wanted to read my books too. So. <laughs> she had Fabian on the cover. Yeah, probably so. So that's that's what I grew up with. <laughs> so you got into writing. How would you get into that? Obviously doing a dissertation, doing that much education, you write. But you seem to have a passion for it. I do. I guess I've never known a time when I didn't write. I was telling a group the other day that I actually received my first rejection letter at the age of eight from Highlights Magazine. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes, and I don't even know why. What spurred me to submit, but I submitted poetry to them. Yeah. And my parents, you know, they didn't say, hey, you need to do this. I just sent off a letter to Highlights Magazine, and I got a rejection letter from um, Kent Brown. You I still actually, remember. I still remember. I still have it. And um, I think it was just really cool to me when I received it. I don't remember being really dejected. I was just like, wow, that's pretty awesome. Highlights Magazine read my poem. They actually they read, read it. They read my poem and took the time to send me a letter that said, yeah, your poem's not for us. But, <laughs> but keep up the but work. But keep up the work. And so I've just always written. Always. I never knew that I could be an author, but no. somehow that happened. Do you journal? Um, I used to a whole lot. As you can tell now from what's happening in our house, having the quiet time doesn't happen a lot. Yeah, Beckham, Beckham. Beckham's trying to talk to us in the microphone. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've just kind of always written. And academically, I really was able to hone my craft. We had a um, 
a teacher, my advisor at the University of Tennessee, Dr. Turner, and he really, he was an older gentleman. He's still alive, but he's retired. And he really took us kind of under his wing and taught us how to write, how to submit, how to not be afraid of rejection and just keep on going. Yeah. What's wrong with you, buddy? What's wrong, Beckham? You want to lay down in my lap? Isn't the Gruffalo on right now? Do you want to go? We're using a babysitter called Television so we could try to record the podcast, but it's not working because we just looked way cooler over here. Do you want to go watch the Gruffalo with Sophie? I'm not watching the Gruffalo. Okay. They love showing off when people are here. They do. Yeah. All kids do. And I could try to lock them in the basement, but I don't think that would work either. You know what today is? What? We met four years ago today. <gasps> no way. Yeah. It came up on Facebook memories that I was down there and I met you that day. That's crazy. I was thinking about that when I was getting ready. Because, well, this morning I scrolled through Facebook memories. And then you come messaging me, hey, we can do it today. And I'm like, okay, then. I'm like, Wait a minute. That was a year ago today. Uh, blooms and heirlooms. Yes, a blooms and heirlooms. And I remember you telling Ooh. me you want to do a podcast. Oh. I didn't expect that. <laughs> yeah. Poor guy. Poor guy. Yeah. Poor Scott, who's trying to record a podcast. <laughs> It'll be gold. <laughs> the, um... Uh-uh. No, Ooh. sir. No, sir. Ooh. There you go. Sophie, okay. why don't we go get him some candy? Yeah, I mean, let's get him we some could sugar. Go get him some sugar. <laughs> Something to distract the child with. Yeah, your candy. A candy in a movie. This is the... Greatest distraction because we couldn't use like vegetables and like anything else right now. No, that wouldn't work. I don't even think candy's gonna work. Okay, I'll hold you, but you have to stay quiet. Do can you say shh shh? Okay, Ooh. okay, all right. There we go. The um, it was a year ago today. You were down there doing a book signing for your book, Loved Baby. Yes. And yes. Uh, how'd you? Yeah, let's just tell the backstory to that if you don't mind. Yeah. So that was a book that was four years in the making. I had experienced um, two miscarriages and um, really noticed that there wasn't necessarily a whole lot of resources out there in the Christian marketplace to help, to help women walk through that time period. And um, then I just felt strongly led to write that book and research it, research the topic and use my own personal experience, talk to hundreds of other women, use kind of my background as a researcher, and then just intertwine it with scripture, and I dove into so much grief research that it's not even funny to try to make it as accurate as possible. And I started the submission project to try to get that book out in the real world, and that took several years, but I managed to acquire an agent along the way, and we were able to finally get it to a, public, a Christian publishing house that they, their exact words, we want to make a difference in the lives of women. Nice. And they put together this beautiful book that released last October. Oh, so it just released it last October. It had just released last October, yes. So, because yes. when I met you, it was like, no, oh, she's an author, and I thought it had been out for a long time. No, it had just released in October, so that was my local book signing. <laughs> yes, it was so awesome. So when I, I gifted that book to a, a girl in Washington, Ashley, I introduced you to yes. on Facebook the other day, and um, it's from a guy it's, it's very difficult to broach that subject with a woman mm-hmm. 
and say, okay, can I give you this book? Yes. <laughs> so it was, it was difficult, but I felt the need to do that. So I reached out to her and she was like, absolutely. So I sent it to her and I just got one of those beautiful thank you letters uh, or thank you notes back. And she, she said, I had no idea, one, that this was out there and two, to even look for something like this. Mm-hmm. And I told her, I said, there's a lot of resources out there. I just happen to know this one. And uh, she said, I wouldn't even thought to even look for it. But she loved it. Now, another lady I knew uh, experienced a pregnancy loss about a month ago. And I don't know her personally. Ashley, I, I've known since she was uh, a preteen. And I, ha- I had the same feeling. I need to reach out to her. So I did. And I said, look, I know we don't know each other really well. So if this is too much, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. There is this book. And I told her about it, linked to your website, and I said, if you, if it's okay with you, I'd like to gift it to you. And uh, she never got back to me, so I thought, okay, I'm not going. Yeah. So how do you do that? How do you approach somebody? That I think that's a really a question that everyone deals with. I don't even think it matters if you're male or female. Whenever someone goes through that type of loss, that where a child dies in your womb, or any type of Grief. Our, grief. Our society does grief so poorly, but the the grief of uh, the death of children or babies in the womb, I think, is especially challenging for our society to know what to do. What do you need? Do you need me to turn it back on? Okay. If we okay. could pause this, no, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll pause it, and I'll we'll come turn right the back. baby on, and we'll we'll pick right up. All right. Okay, we're back. Okay, we're back. So you asked me how we can approach um, women who've experienced pregnancy loss. What do we do? And how do we even introduce the book to them? That's one of the problems that I felt was um, just a societal problem that we don't know how to approach people who've experienced pregnancy loss. And so I wanted to write the book for women. But I also wanted to write the book because I wanted there to be some options for gifts to give to women. Mm-hmm. And when I planned the book, I was able to make sure that it was a beautiful book, that it was hardback, and that it would be presented well as a gift. And I found that a lot of people will just send it to someone and write a little note, I'm so sorry, you know, for the loss of your child, and um, put a card with it. And then if a woman does choose to read it, you know, she does. She does. Right. A lot of times I think it's just kind of sent through the mail, mm-hmm. you know, or handed directly, just face to face. And it's usually well received. I've had women who've reached out that experienced pregnancy loss 30 years ago, and they say this has just been instrumental in helping me kind of piece together some issues I didn't know I was necessarily dealing with. And, some, uh, you know, the advent of social media, Instagram, Facebook. So I'll get messages on Instagram or tagged in posts from people all over the world and they'll have a picture of the book and like a coffee cup and they'll tell their story and about how they just feel less alone by reading the stories in the book of other women who've experienced pregnancy loss. So it's kind of like this community. I think reading the book helps you feel a little bit less alone and part of a larger community knowing there's other women out there who are going through these same emotional and spiritual battles i that day we met Mm -hmm. i picked the book up and started to thumb through it and i think i told you that's when i decided i'm not going to read this yes it was just it was way too raw Mm -hmm. those opening chapters her alone in the bathroom Mm -hmm. 
realizing that was going, what was going on. And, um, it, I guess for me, it was shocking to me, at the emotions it brought up with me that were almost 20 years old. Mm -hmm. Cause, uh, I think I told you that day that we had experienced pregnancy mm -hmm. loss on Christmas day. Mm -hmm. And what had happened was I, uh, we left our families in Washington state and we were, they lived in Eastern Washington. We were driving through the Columbia River Gorge, go back up to central Washington, and we'd stop to have dinner at like a uh, Sherry's there in Hood River. All this is vivid memories. Mm -hmm. uh, she gets up to the restroom, which is normal. Mm -hmm. and then she comes back and tells me. Mm -hmm. And I was just, I, I didn't know what to do. Do we go, do we take you to the doctor? What? No, well, let's just get home and we'll, so we did that. She goes to the doctor the next day and confirms that, yeah, she'd had a miscarriage. But um, reading that book, I felt guilty mm -hmm. because she was in there alone going through that and I wasn't there. I don't know what I'd done had I been there. Yes. Or could have done. Mm -hmm. But it just started telling me when I was reading that book about what she was going through in there. And I was just like, I can't do this. I'm about to get emotional right here in downtown Inglewood. In front of somebody I don't know, in front of somebody I know very well, and a bunch of people, I'm not going to read this. So I didn't read it. So unfortunately, I've not read the stories of other women. Mm -hmm. So it's ironic, though the wife and the wife, the ex-wife and I are now divorced. Every Christmas, even since our divorce, we'll have like a little text message back and forth about nothing, mm -hmm. but it's all about that. It's oh yes, and. uh We've discussed that a couple of times, not on Christmas, but like that how it's just it's about nothing, but it's really all about mm -hmm. that. Um, how did you find other women who had gone through a pregnancy loss? And how do you reach out to them? So what I did was is um, I based it on what I had learned as a researcher, and I went through the whole process of the book as if I was conducting research, but I didn't want it to ever be presented like research. But what I did was I, um, there's one strategy where you can just put it out there and it's called the snowball effect and more and more people will sign up to be part of your research project. So I just put it out on Facebook. Look, this is my project. I'm wanting to find women who've experienced pregnancy loss. I want us to get together in an online environment and just share stories through the written word and then I'm going to take those stories and I'm going to kind of, kind of analyze them and find commonalities. And one day we'll be able to put them in the format of a book intended to help others feel less alone. And I did tell them in the post that, you know, I do come from a Christian background. So the book will be faith-based. You know, I wanted to be very open and honest about that. And I put it out there on Facebook and people just started sharing it. And I had included in that my email address and I said, email me if you're interested. And then I would, I, once they emailed me, I submitted them back this long letter that explained what we wanted to do and an invitation to join our online Facebook group, or they could write me, you know, a letter if they just wanted to stay anonymous and private. Mm -hmm. And so that's how it started. That's how I got participants. And, um, they were able to just write and share their stories. And through that process, I learned really the value of community because the women were online in this private environment, just kind of sharing tidbits of their stories. And then 
that would spur something in someone else's memory and they would just start this long conversation back and forth about this one particular issue, like how, for example, their doctor treated them, what words their doctor used. And so I was really able to just see what was going on inside a woman's mind looking back at her at her loss. Doctors are, and this isn't a, this isn't a critique in a, in a negative way on doctors. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of women tell me that they felt as if the doctor or the, or the medical staff was just so cold about mm-hmm. it. And, of course, I don't have this conversation right away with them because they're going through their own grieving process. But I understand why they are. You, you become so jaded. Yes. You see this every day. Yes. And it's, you, it's almost as if you lose your empathy, mm-hmm. if that's the right way to phrase that. But I can understand why doctors are, well, I'm sorry, you had a miscarriage. Yes, or use very clinical language. Right. And yes, so they they see it so often. And also, you know, as a physician, a lot of times you don't need to get emotionally involved. Right. And, you know, they're not the counselor. They're the one taking care of your bodies. Well, you can't get emotionally attached Mm -hmm. to everybody you see. It it, it would kill you. Mm -hmm. And also what the sad part about that is, is that historically women were treated extremely poorly. So I know one lady who is in her 70s or 80s, and after she um, delivered a child, and at that time the husband was not allowed in the delivery room, but her child was born um, born still, and the physician went out into the waiting room and told the husband, well, you know, this your, your child didn't survive, sometimes you lose one. Like, that's exactly what was said. And so I think historically, women were not treated at all with empathy, and it was just treated as if just a bump in the road. Wow. Which was really harmful. So a lot of physicians just kept up with that mentality. But um, it's wonderful also to see, though, there has been a change of tide because grief research tells us, and this isn't like Christian grief research, this is all over the board. Grief research tells us that a very healing, a way to help make the emotional journey a little bit easier is if a physician will just acknowledge that this was a baby yeah. Yeah, and, and use that language instead. It's just simple changes of words will actually help the healing process because then a woman's not left wondering, well, should I even be sad? You know, at least there's some validation. Yes, this is something you can be sad about. And because you have to admit there's something to be sad about before you can go through the mourning process. And it's something you can be angry about. Oh, yes. You can be angry about Yes, it's a, your emotions or your are emotions. valid. Yeah, feel them. Right. Yes, yes. I said that at my dad's funeral. Um, I, I almost punched the funeral director in the head. Not the director, but one of the guys at the funeral. He comes up to my mom. It was the first time she'd seen the body in the casket. And she'd done what she was expected to do. She broke down. She was doing all that stuff. And he come up to her and he says, if, if God could just pull back the veils of heaven and you could see in, you'd see how happy he is and you wouldn't want him to leave. And I thought, I had some other more coarse language mm-hmm. running through my head, but it basically was, I'm going to punch you in the throat. Yes, yes, <laughs> you know? yes. And mom turned around and she says, no, I'm angry. Mm-hmm. I'm upset. I'm selfish. Leave me alone. Let me have this. And I thought well, that's probably better than what I was going to tell him. Uh, 
and it was better coming from her. And that was the thing when we were going through our pregnancy loss, the stupid things that people would say as if me being upset, me being everything that we were going through, it, it almost invalidates it. Yes, it does. They would say stuff, well, maybe maybe there was something wrong with the child and God knew you were going to be able to take care of it. And I was like, what? Or they would say something, well, it's in a better place. Or they just said the dumbest yes. stuff. Mm-hmm. And that it would, I literally one day, uh, we were, I was pastoring, I guess we were pastoring at the time. And I told the wife, I said, look, just don't even acknowledge those people. Mm-hmm. Just don't even acknowledge them. They're wrong. Mm-hmm. Theologically, they're wrong. Mm-hmm. It sounds cute. Maybe God need another angel. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't become angels, dumb dumb. Mm-hmm. You know. Yes. Uh, I just don't. And so, I, you know, I had to take that role on. And that's the same thing with my mom. Oh, that's where I was going. Was at my dad's funeral. Uh, people would say the same thing. And uh, I remember at the funeral, I said, "Look, it's okay to be angry. Mm-hmm. It's okay to be angry at God." Yes. It's okay to express that anger to God. Yes. Uh, and I talk about how Jacob got his name, became Israel, because he wrestled with mm-hmm. God. It's okay. It's okay. To grab him and go to the mat. Yes. With this. He made these emotions. He, he did. He can handle them. I know I point a lot of women to First Samuel, where Hannah goes up to the mountain, and the priest thinks she is um, drunk because she is just crying so much. And she finally says, I'm just so upset. I mean, she doesn't say that verbatim, of course, in the Bible, but she, she says, I'm grief stricken. And it's because she can't have a child. She can't bear a child. And if the Bible puts that much emphasis on this unmet need, this unmet desire for a child, and that it's okay to be, go to God in our anger and our sadness and our grief strickenness, then absolutely it's okay for us to have these emotions when a child dies in our womb, when our mother dies, Mm -hmm. when our father dies, you know, yeah, it's, and I think that's where we get grief wrong so often. Well, the other thing I've I've learned, having had these two losses in my life, this many years apart, is when people come up and they say, "Oh, I lost a baby too. I know how you're feeling." No, you don't. Mm-mm. It's all different. You know how you felt, mm-hmm. or I lost my dad, so I know how. You, no, you don't. No. You know how you felt. Yes. You don't know what I'm going through, and mom would feel guilty with the grief that she was going mm-hmm. through. And I'm like, no, don't. It's okay. It's okay. And she says, is this lasting too long? No. Grief, I read this great um, anecdote by one of a grief researcher, and it said, you know, when will this end is kind of like ask, looking at the sky and saying, how, how far is up? You know, right. you can't answer that question at all. And every aspect of research points to the fact that the only way to move through grief is to mourn. We have to do that. And when people were saying things to you, such as, well, it might have had a chromosomal abnormality, well, you're still grieving for this particular child. Or a lot of women are met with, well, you can always try again. But you're met, you're grieving for a particular child, your dreams for that child. And then often some women can't go on to just have another child. Right. They've had to have a hysterectomy because of this. They um, Their loss was after seven years of infertility. You know, this. The, a lot of times we just give these pat answers to really complex 
complex emotions. We do. And that's what I often tell people because I haven't been in the ministry. I've done a lot of funerals. And people like, I just don't know what to say. Well, then don't. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> don't. I'm so sorry. I'm so loss. sorry is yes. the only acceptable thing. Uh, there's, a, there's a Jewish tradition called sitting Shiva. And seven days after the grief, uh, seven days after the death, um, is the family basically just stays home. They stay home. And there's a whole process of things that they do. But the instruction is if you're going to go visit someone who's sitting Shiva, you don't speak until you're spoken to. Wow. And you, the only thing you say if you do speak first is, I'm sorry. Wow. You don't add anything else. And you only speak as it, when you're spoken to. You just come in and sit mm-hmm. and be still. And that's powerful. And that's what I try to tell people. And they do that for seven days. And then at the seventh day, they it's not that the grief is over. It's just the extreme part of the grief. You've, you've worked through mm-hmm. it. And, and the seven, biblically, is whole, mm-hmm. complete, creation, all that's in there. And then for 30 days after that, the, was it seven days? Anyways, for 30 days after that, it's seven days after the burial. That's why I had the number 10 in my head. Because usually three days from death to burial, then seven days after the burial, you sit Shiva. And then 30 days after that's another morning process. And basically in that, and this is what I had to keep reminding mom. Do we sell the cows? Do I do this? Do I do? We make no major decisions during those 30 days. And it's not that the grief is over. You just, you just don't do anything rash mm-hmm. and get through it. So I try to share that with people. Uh, a mother... This is another thing that came up my Facebook memories this week. There was a a mother when I lived in Washington. She had triplets, and one of them was out driving one night and had a car wreck and died on Halloween. Mm. He was 17. And a lady, I didn't know them, a lady in, my, in the church I used to pastor called me up. She said, they don't have a minister. Will you go? So I did. I go over there. I'm with them. Uh, I go through the funeral with them. I go through the burial with them. I, I mean, I did all that. And I hung out with him off and on after that, got to be a friend. And she asked me one day, she said, when will this be over? No, she said, everybody's telling me time heals. I said, they're liars. (laughs) She said, what? I said, you'll have a scar. You know, I've I've been hurt. And yeah, the pain goes away, but there's always a scar and there's always memory. I said, even with my my injury that I have to this day, I have pain. I said, what I'm going to tell you is that this never ends. You just enter a new reality. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be at the store one day, and you're going to see a bag of M&Ms. And you're going to think, oh, my God, he loves M&Ms. And it's going to bring back all this joy and this happiness and all these beautiful thoughts. And you're just going to be so thankful for those memories. You'll be in that same store two months later, see that same bag of M&Ms, and you're going to lose it. Mm-hmm. I said, and that will happen for years to come. Mm-hmm. And that's what I found reading what little bit of your book I read was with me, was a lot of those emotions started coming back up. Yeah, they can sit side by side, and you never do get over it. You just get to the other, what I call the other side of grief, where joy and sadness can coexist. And you can, you can the have... The and the yang. Yeah, you can have both of those emotions. Is the Gruffalo still on, baby? Yeah, the Gruffalo. The... Uh, how is that community still active? It is. It actually turned into um, I decided after seeing the power of that community started another Facebook group, and it was open for anyone who just searches on Facebook, you know, Christian pregnancy loss, miscarriage, 
um, Christian and pregnancy loss. Um, it's an environment of, of women of faith who've experienced pregnancy loss, and there's over 2,000 in there now. And they just come in, and I, I have several women who are what I call leader, who are leaders in the group. So they're all across the United States. So each week, one of us is kind of the group host, I guess is the best way to say it. But we don't we don't do any programs. We're not trying to do not book stuff. studies, not selling stuff. What we envision this to be, what I just set it out to be, was it's kind of like a table where women can just gather, and if at midnight, you know, they're upset that their mother-in-law said harsh words to them, they can come to this group and they can top it in and there's going to be other women underneath going through the same thing or someone down the line who experienced it a year ago and can just give encouragement and support. So it's just a table where women can come on and, and talk about issues of pregnancy loss and they know they're not going to be judged. I think that's the other key thing is when you're going through grief, you think you're the only one going mm-hmm. through grief. Yes. Um, the... I think that's what helped pull mom out of a lot of what she was going through to the day after uh, dad passed away. My aunt passed away. Mm. And uh, one of my other aunts called me up and she says, hey, I don't know how you're going to tell Linda, but Peanut just passed. And I said, well, she's asleep. Someone go in there and wake her up and I'm going to tell her. She said, well, don't tell her now. Let her get some rest. I said, she's going to wake up at 2 in the morning and get on Facebook. Oh, yes, yes. No. She said, how are you going to tell her? I said, I just told you. I'm going to wake her up and tell her. Yeah, that's... And I did, and I expected a rewind of everything we just went through. Mm-hmm. And it's just like all of a sudden her face woke up, and she became aware, I'm not the only one. Mm-hmm. This is... And to me, she's been totally different wow. since that moment. Um, and that's what I like about your community is that... These women who do think they're the only ones, who think there's no resources out there, like Ashley mm-hmm. didn't think there were any resources out there. Once they find this, uh, it's got to be, it's, it's got to be life changing. I think it is, especially for a lot of women. I know one of the group leaders now. She told me that um, she actually discovered the group by googling, "I want to commit suicide after my miscarriage." Wow. Yeah. We have a lot of women who are to that depths of despair. And so they come in and they see, okay, here's someone who this happened to last year, but they're still, they're still making it through. One step at a time, they're making it through. And I think being able to see that can somehow help in some small way. And I think it also helps provide a little bit, I'm not going to say purpose, but when we're able to give back, it helps our own journey of grief. So just being able to get on on Facebook and seeing that someone's going through a a really hard emotional day and you being able to come down below their post and just giving them some encouragement and support, it makes you feel like you, your loss isn't because of something, but you can use your experience to help show empathy to others, to show compassion to others. I think that's huge in any type of depression. Yes. Is when you can learn to give, mm-hmm. uh, when you can learn to help others. It does, in my case, and I know in a lot of other people's cases, and a lot of the stuff I've read, just what you said, going out and helping others is huge mm-hmm. in your own, I hate to use this word, recovery, 
but yes. maybe that's the best word in your own recovery in your own path of healing yes and i think that's important there it's, it's good that you had how'd you meet my friend linda salisbury yeah so i met linda because of that initial Facebook post, I'm going to write a book about pregnancy loss. Would you like to yeah. tell me your story? And one of her family members had shared the post, and um, she contacted me. And she she's from here. You knew yeah, that. she's from here, and um, lives, of course, Indiana now. But she um, shared with me. Not only has she been a pivotal member of the group, she's now actually our group leader. Oh wow! Yeah, she's our group leader. But she shared with me. Pages and pages from her journal. Yeah, she she pages. always journaled. And so I was able to use so much of her experience in the book and also her husband's experience as well to show that some men do feel profound senses of grief. Uh, and I was also able to share stories of men who didn't grieve because I wanted women who have a husband such as that to not feel alone. I, I don't know if it's that they don't grieve, they don't know how. Yeah, well, there's some that don't know how. Then there's some who honestly felt like the loss was so early. And if a yeah. doctor says something very clinical in their minds. It's they, just over. It's just over. Yeah. yeah. So if it's a very scientific husband. I've, I've had several women who've had men that have not necessarily taken it as something that would be hurtful. However, right. that's. That's not in a lot of situations. No. Not in a lot of situations, but men don't know how to grieve. Not necessarily don't know how to grieve, but they don't know how to help their woman that was walk mine. through this. And they also, some of them feel a profound sense of anger, and they want to try to predict what a woman needs. And so they'll just try to do what they think she needs instead of just being vulnerable and open. And, oh, I'm so, you know, so sad. There's, I, I have a chapter in the book that delves into different styles of grief for men. And um, one man was just so angry at God for years and years and years. Oh. Yeah, so that's in the book as well. Okay. And that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I have to tell people that all the time. That's okay. Yeah. We can't expect others to grieve the same way we do. This, the takeaway from that chapter was we have to be able to give grace. We have to be able to grieve in the way we need to grieve, but then we can't expect others to grieve the same way. And, and that's, uh, I think... When you're dealing with something with couples, mm -hmm. that's probably part of the frustration. She's grieving one way, and since this is the way I grieve, you should be yes. feeling this. And so we project that onto them, yes. and then that comes anger, and then vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, you're right. We need to be able to understand that we all grieve differently, and just because I'm not the way you are it doesn't mean anything negative about yes. me. It just means that's just not how I that's grieve. That's not how I'm grieving, yes. Because somebody said something about me with this recent loss, my father, and I said I haven't, I haven't had that sad breakdown moment. But I, that's not what I do. I don't have sad breakdown moments like that. Uh, I'm not saying it won't happen. It's just it hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. And part of my grief has been dealing with all the other stuff I got to deal with. You know, now all of a sudden I got to learn how to be a farmer. <laughs> Good <Right>? luck. <laughs> right? We had a baby calf born the other day, and I'm like, I don't know what to do with it. And then somebody said, Well, is it a boy or a girl? I don't, I don't know. I, it's not like the mama's gonna let me go up there and flip it over and look. And maybe she will, but yeah, you're you're gonna have to catch that baby. I know. <laughs> well, I stood up there day and I saw it use the restroom. I'm like, ah, it's a girl. <laughs> <laughs> you're you kind of need to spend some time on the farm here. You'll get a quick. <laughs> That's what I need to do. Come out here and just hang out. Yeah. Um, I gotta. 
we got a corral set up on a shoot, so and I feed them in there when I feed them grain. I feed them in there because I want them used to going in there. Mm-hmm. So if I ever work them, I can take they just go in. Yes. But um, I don't know how to work them. I don't know what to do with them. So I got you in the shoots, and that's all I do. <laughs> There's a lot of interesting things that happen in that shoot. Yes. Yeah. To, uh, well, Dad, baby. <clears throat> a few years boys. ago, well, that's what yeah. I was going to say. A few years ago, I, uh, when I was living in Washington State, I'd flown down. It was March. And uh, Dad said, hey, I got a couple of calves that need castrated. So I need you to help me when you come down here. I'm like, okay. He didn't have a corral set up. So we had to cull out these little calves and get them in the barn. And I got the stall in the barn. I said, okay, we'll just get him in here. <clears throat> we'll get one at a time in here and we'll castrate him. So he runs a calf in that stall with me. And I'm like, well, I guess you just tackle it. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I went after this calf. They're strong. They are very strong. And this calf ran me around that stall, banging my head into the walls, dragging me through the manure and the hay and all that. And I finally I get this thing wrestled down. And at one point I thought, just let it go and start over. And I thought, no, I'm not doing that. I don't want to have to do this again with this calf. So I finally get it wrestled down. Dad just stand there in the door. And I was like, well, was it a boy or a girl? Because the way I was holding it, I couldn't look. And he goes, oh, that's a girl. So I let it up. <clears throat> he let it out, run another one in. Well, after about the fifth cow, calf, I realized, wait, there were only four out there. So I stepped back out in the hall of the barn. He wasn't calling them out. So after I wrestled one, he wasn't letting it go. <laughs> he was bringing <clears throat> it back through. <laughs> <laughs> so I must have wrestled the same cow two or three times, right? So I start calling them out. Finally, when it's all said and done, I get I, there's only one calf that was a boy. We get him banded. I go down to the house. I'm just sweaty. I'm bleeding. I've, I've just got stuff all over me. And Mom's like, what happened to you? And I told her. I said, oh, by the way, you only got one little bull. She said, well, I know that. I said, well, Dad didn't know that. She said, yes, he does. I said, he told me there's a couple. He said, no, there's only one little bull. I said, well, he didn't know which one it was, and I had to wrestle all them calves. She said, Scott, he can stand on the back porch and that call him out by name. <laughs> and I went, okay. <laughs> he just wanted you to practice. <laughs> I see what he did there. And he would never admit to that, but he did. He did. And that, they, but I got it. I got it. I don't know why I went on that tangent. I always talk about calves, but um, <clears throat> the uh, so you're speaking from time to time. I saw um, uh, the beanery here recently. You were speaking there for that wise. Yes, I was speaking. It was actually they hosted the event at the Senior Citizen Center in McMinn County. But oh, it, that's was, what it was yes. I saw the poster at the beanery. Yes, the um, Chamber of Commerce sponsored it. Well, Wise is a part of the Chamber of Commerce, so I got to speak yeah. locally to. I think there were over 150 women. In so, what does group. Wise stand for? Women inspiring success and excellence. Oh, okay. So they group together and often have speakers and luncheons and networking. So when you speak like that, do you just tell them about the book? I mean, do you have a certain? It's kind of different um, depending on the audience. So at the early part of this month, I was in Texas. I was in Fort Worth, Texas, and I was speaking at an event that was solely women who'd experienced pregnancy loss. I didn't even know that existed. Yes, so it was, um, it's, um, it's called Gathering Hope, and the local moms in Texas put it together, and it's just a night where women gather who've experienced pregnancy loss, and they have, uh, they had me in as a keynote speaker, and then they also had opportunities to sit around a table, drink coffee, eat dessert, and tell their own stories of loss, which wow. was so powerful. But for that particular event, I, of course, went deep into 
into the grief of, of pregnancy loss. They wanted me to talk about the grieving process because they felt a lot of people had been told they don't have to grieve or they don't need to grieve to just get over it. So I talked a whole lot about the process of grieving from a spiritual aspect, an academic aspect, and we just pulled it all together into this idea of gathering hope. So for those events, I know when I speak, there isn't going to be a dry in the audience. You know, right. I know it's going to be deep. It's going to be hard. Um, I guess I'm an inspirational grief speaker in that in that aspect. And then there's other events where, like for this particular group of women, it was a lunch event. And when you talk about issues like pregnancy loss, like you said, you just opened the pages of the book and it brought back so many memories. Right. And I did not think it was the place at a luncheon event with 150 women who were just taking off an hour from their lunch to go deep into that type of grief. You know, I didn't want to trigger them in that way. So um, I was invited to speak about the process of how I wrote the book. Yeah. And um, that was, and I really ended it in this idea that we all just need to be champions of success for each other, that all along any of our paths, we're going to face rejection, we're going to face failure, but that doesn't mean we have to keep stopping. But what often keeps us going is the kind words of others. Yeah. Just encouraging us along the way. And it doesn't even have to be something big. That as women, sometimes we think we need to send a casserole to show support. But it really, it's just a word of, hey, you did a great job with that. It is. You know, you need a drink. Okay. I'll get you a drink in just a minute. Okay. Sophie, could you get him a drink, please? Thank you. As you can see, I think she's playing with fire over there with my candle. Is it? In the background. Yeah, she lit a whole nother candle. She's five. Um, you can see that my life is very, this is just one small aspect of it. it and is, you love it. I do. I love it. It's just, it is hard to focus on one thing because it is just, it's just crazy all the time. You love it. The, um, <laughs> I, I wished, and maybe I should do, maybe I should help out in this. I wish we talked more about the process of grief. Yes. I wish we did that more often because in Western, Western culture, we don't, we don't really grieve. And, I, and that's part in my mind of what's wrong with a lot of psychological issues that people have. They've um, not learned yes. how to let it out. They've not learned that it's okay to do that. Yes. And, uh, and it finds a way of coming out. It will find it, a way. You know, psychosomatically or physically, physically or you know, emotionally. Yes, it's going to find its way out. Well, the, I, the yoga studio that I was going to, uh, she's now moved it to a different location. Uh, they have massage and some other type of therapy things. And uh, I started going, I went back to yoga that week. And she was asking me how I was doing. I said, look, this grief is going to start working its way through my body. I know what my body does. I don't have that mental, emotional, public breakdown. It will go through my body. And so that's why I'm here. Because, and, she's, and she agreed with you that uh, it's going to find its way out. And if we don't understand that, and if we don't know what that is, we think it's something else. Yes. And you go down that rabbit hole. Yes. Uh, it's kind of like stress will do the same thing. But in Eastern cultures, you'll see that they'll wail. They'll scream. They have this huge thing. He's wanting that drink, isn't he? Yes. What is it? I know. I know she's playing with fire. <laughs> yeah. We're, we don't need to be doing that, Sophie. Go ahead and stop. The, uh, how, how do we change that? Do we change that in our churches? I mean, how do we change I, this culture of grief? I think we have to have conversations about it. 
Yeah, I think we need, like, the sitting Shiva. I had no idea that that existed in the Jewish culture, but it makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. And I think we just have to keep talking about it. And the idea is that the five stages of grief, I think that's what people think grief is. And that is such a inaccurate description that whole research study was about a person going through their own terminal illness and then it's been projected out to how you're supposed to grieve for any certain situation uh, the problem i find with that is the word stages yes it's not stages <laughs> yeah there's no. it's maybe the five oceans or the five waves yeah, the hurricane it come in yes. and out, in it and comes out. all it circles around you she blew it out. Okay, that's oh, good. I'm glad okay. she blew the candle out because we don't need no, fire in the house. Okay, can you go get him a drink, please? That would be helpful. Maybe take him to... Maybe put... He wants a drink. Go find him something, please. Yeah, so I think we just have to talk about it and um, give people... It's almost like you have to give people permission to mourn, to grieve. Right. That you're not... And that it's not a sign of craziness. And we have so many problems... I think there's so many relationship breakdowns as well. I've had several men tell me that, you know what? I didn't really realize it until later or until after looking at your book. Because that's a lot of what of things people are talk about, talk with me about. Um, that my wife was going through such a hardship, and now I realize that that was a lot of the cause of our marital problems. I think you know, I told you yeah. that that was the start of my divorce. Yeah, you did tell me that. You did. And I was at a bookstore and was talking to a, a store manager about doing a book signing. And he was like, yeah, absolutely. We want to do this because this is what happened in my marriage. Yeah. yeah. And you told me the same thing. Yeah. And, I, and just, and it's not, I think it was because of my, my reaction within two months, I went and got a vasectomy. Oh, Yeah. She wanted to have another child. Uh-huh. She wanted to try it again. And I could not imagine watching her go through that go through again. Go through that pain again. <clears throat> so for me, it was a bit selfish because I didn't, it's not that I didn't want another child, obviously. I mean, we were, we, this is one of the children that we planned. I just didn't want to go through that again. I didn't want to watch her go through that again. And so in my mind, I was thinking, I'm doing you a favor. You thought you were protecting her. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Protecting. Mm-hmm. She thought I was taking a dream away from her, which I did. Yeah. And then someone was like, well, can't you compromise? I don't, I don't know how mm-hmm. to compromise on that. Um, and I think that led to uh, resentment and anger mm-hmm. on her part. Uh, and rightfully so. I wish that I had known a better way to deal with it. But you didn't. I didn't. You didn't, and that's... But I was supposed to. I was the pastor. But but there, you did what came natural, you know, especially as a person who wants to help make sure that that pain wasn't going to be there. I never thought of it as the protecting way, but you're right. That was definitely something that, I guess in my mind, I thought I was was doing, protecting me and her and... um, Oh, well, then right after that, we moved back to eastern Washington and her brother's son, who was due around the same time as uh, as ours, was born. Oh. And he lived two doors down from us, and uh, his wife went back to work within two weeks of having the baby. And so Becca, being a stay-at-home mom, got to keep him, and she kept him until he was like five. So that was a real... That was a real good thing at that time for that to happen that way. I mean, because she got to 
She got to mother. She got to mother. Yeah. She did, and and they they're very good together. But that's been, I guess, almost twenty years now that I think about it. Wow. Yeah. But it still feels like yesterday. Yeah. Any situation of grief, I think, is just so big. Yeah. And encompasses us, and we we're afraid sometimes to walk through those big emotions. Oh, I'm afraid to even talk to her about it. Yeah. Even even when we were, although I said that was the start of our divorce, I don't think we we weren't angry and mad at each other. I just think that was a seedling at the time. Yeah. But even after that, years after that, I was afraid to talk to her about it. Um, I was afraid to have this conversation with you and me about me talking about it. Because mm-hmm. uh, matter of fact, I told Beth. I said I I don't know how I'm going to deal with that. I don't know if I'm going to lose it or. <laughs> Right, and well, you, you've you got a child sitting on the table right now drinking milk and one running around, so it kind of helps. <laughs> kind of helps distract. Uh, yeah, it helps distract a little bit, but yes, I think it, um, talking about it is hard, and we don't, I still, even though I'm the person people go to about pregnancy loss, I wrote the book when I find out that a friend has faced pregnancy loss or someone in our community, I still go through that feeling of, I don't know what to do. Right. How do I handle it? And this? you're the expert. And I'm the expert. But I, you, then you have, yes, and I'm the expert and I still have that. So I don't think we ever get to a place of, of feeling truly comfortable of knowing what to do uh, because we all just want to fix it and take the pain away and that's not possible. We nor can would it be all, good. Nor would, no, it wouldn't. That's what I was telling, uh, that's what I was telling my mom the other day when she said, talking about how difficult this was that she was going through and I said, Mom, you've often told me if you could take a pain away from me or something that you would. She said, yeah, I would. I said, I wouldn't take this from you. And she just kind of looked at me. She said, why? I said, you have to go through it. If I was to take this away from you, you're going to miss out so much on the, on, on the other side. You, you have to experience this. You have to go through it. And as difficult as it is to watch or for you to do, you just got to look at it like, I've got to go through this. Instead of looking at it like I got to get past this, yeah. No, you got to go through it. You got to experience it. That's part of the journey. And so you've you've talked to a couple of guys. Um, overall, their reaction. I mean, you had that the uh, bookstore manager tell you that yes, you could do this, and that was part of his marriage. Mm-hmm. What's the other reaction with guys? I mean, do they talk about how they? It really just depends on their personality and how they're emotionally ready to talk about it I had one man and I think also just to backtrack a little bit the topic of pregnancy loss is also hard because when you're going through pregnancy loss you're at the stage you're at the age where your friends are having babies yeah so you also don't want you don't want to be like the Debbie Downer like oh well this could happen this could happen because I think we a lot of people myself included the first round kind of have that blissful ignorance that as society tells you you're going to get pregnant and nine months later it's all going to end in joy and so you don't want to be the Debbie Downer of well this could happen but um it's definitely it's one in four pregnancies end in law so it's a great possibility but so me I think we have a hard time talking about it for that reason but men I remember one man who walked in where I was doing a book signing and um, I was sitting at the front and he saw the word baby on the cover and it was pretty you know pink book and he walks up to it to pick it up and get it. And he asks, he says, 
He said, oh, we're having a baby. I should get this for my wife. <laughs> yeah, and I just very gently said, well, this is this is a book for women who are having a hard time who, who've lost their babies. And his face just turned white. He dropped the book. He didn't even look at me. He just turned around and left. Yeah. You, know, you know, it was that, that faced with that reality of, oh, wow, this could happen. Or, oh, about wow. About messed up. Yeah, about messed up. This, Yes, yes. So, um so no, guys, depends. pay attention to yeah, the... Yeah, <laughs> pay attention. Yes, this is not a book just if your wife's having a baby. <laughs> but so I think a lot of men, you know, some men are very open and talk about their feelings, so they're more inclined to do that. Some men are not. I've had hmm. a lot... I've probably had more men actually approach my husband than anything. Like, Well, of course. You know, like say, thank her for writing this, for yeah. being vulnerable. So they've done that. And I've had some men come up to me and talk, but... So um, how did he grieve? I mean, did... We are very familiar with grief, unfortunately. It um, started out early in our relationship in high school when um, my brother's best friend was in an automobile accident, and my husband was the driver of that automobile. Oh, wow. And it was nothing but a um, a gravel road that caused the car crash. You know, it was nothing nefarious. But yeah. um, our relationship really started out surrounded in grief. And then two weeks before my husband and I got married, his um, little sister, 20 years old, died in a car accident. Oh, my. Who She was one of my best friends. And um, so we, again, were faced with this big, humongous grief. I mean, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Newlyweds. Yeah. Not even married. About to go on your honeymoon while you're grieving. Yeah, how do you even celebrate yeah, that? Yeah, how do you? Yeah, my husband... Because she was obviously going to be in the wedding. Yeah, so he doesn't know who came to the wedding versus who came to the funeral. Yeah. You know, that, so we have unfortunately studied grief from a very intimate level, and that's, there's been other situations, too, of one of his best friends in college was killed in a car accident, and the dad had to call us to say, because he lived in Florida, um, I've just got a call that, you know, yeah. Justin passed away. I need you to go to the morgue to see if that's happened. So my husband... <sighs> We've been so familiar with grief, and my husband knew that what, however she grieves, she needs to grieve. Right. So he was very supportive in whatever I needed to do. He was just there to hold me and hug me um, and just be there for me, make sure I had food, you know, all of that. But at the same time, because we'd faced such big griefs in our life, I felt very embarrassed that I was grieving. Yeah. So embarrassed that I was grieving because, you know, we'd lost a sister. And here I was grieving over a baby that I'd only known for, you know, how long? Known of. My, known of in my womb, yeah. But um, after, so I faced that, and I think a lot of women face that as well. But um, I had nothing, but my mother had had a stillbirth, so I compared that grief to, to her grief. So I kept a lot inside and didn't talk about it because of that comparison that I was doing internally in my mind. But all the people in my lives, my husband, my mother-in-law, my mom, you know, after I expressed this to them, you know, much later, they were like, don't be silly. Grief is grief. You know, grief is grief. You have to, you have to grieve. But even that embarrassment is one of our emotions. Yes, yes. The, and that was the thing that I noticed is I felt awkward. You go some, well, I, ha, I went to work. It was after Christmas. I go to work. Uh, and one of the girls at work made, we we're in a company meeting. One of the girls at work made a joke about me and a baby coming up. And I sat there for a second, and normally I'd respond to a joke like that. And I just sat there for a second, and everybody just kind of looked at me. I said, I was going to bring this up, and I know this is really awkward time to bring it up in light of that joke. Yeah. 
we had a miscarriage this weekend. And she she felt really bad. But, but then I felt like every time I go in someplace, I felt awkward. Like everybody felt s- sorry for, yes, yes. And they did. Yes, they did. And I felt bad that they felt sorry for me. Yes. Just like, well, we don't want to go here because, you know, they're going to ask these questions. And then I got into the habit of prepping people. If we're going someplace, I would let them know ahead of time. Okay, look, she's lost the baby. If she wants to talk about it, please let her talk about it. Otherwise, don't bring it up. Yes. That's what my husband did for me. I, ironically, looking back now that I've told my entire story in a book, did not want to talk about it at right. all. Other than my husband and my closest friends. and my, I wouldn't even answer the phone when my brother called. He would have to text me. I just couldn't say the words aloud. Couldn't talk about it. Couldn't right. articulate it because it's so complex. So he would go before me and at our church yeah. um, when we'd go out to eat with friends. Look. She knows you love her. Don't mention it. Don't. Just don't mention it. Talk. Just talk about something else. If she ever wants to talk about it, let her. And I had told him, and that's what I encourage women to speak their needs, to tell their spouse, this is what I need. And I was very clear, Perry, I do not want to talk about this, you know, right. at the, <laughs> while we're having a hamburger. You know, it just seems too important to, to talk about. Well, and tr- that, that happened to me uh, about a month or so ago. Mom's church had a had a uh, barbecue for the community had a band come out and play a buddy of mine played in the band uh reliance yes so guy i worked with he used to play he plays in the he's a banjo player so i go down there to watch it plus it was really important that i go down there for mom and this guy comes up to me introduces himself and he starts talking about the funeral so talking about the death of my dad and i'm sitting there thinking i don't want to talk about this yeah yes and if i'd have brought it up it'd have been different yes but also <clears throat> removing myself from me and just looking at it from a psychological or ph- maybe philosophical standpoint, understand that he needs to talk about this. Yes. It's important for him because him and dad worked together for almost 20 years. Mm. So it's important for him. And so I, I then looked at it from that side. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, he needs this. And, and also he wanted to make sure you knew that he wasn't just... Ignoring it. Ignoring it, or as if it was unimportant to him. Yeah, it's such a... That's the eggshell we walk on. That's the eggshell we walk on, and where we don't know people's grief style. You know, you really do have to just kind of right. guess what's what's their grief style. My best friend, after my second miscarriage, we were somewhere together, and she said, I want you to know that I'm always thinking of you, but I'm not going to bring it up to you because I don't know if you want to talk about it at that particular moment, but I'm always available for you. And I thought that was just the best thing anybody could have said. Hey, I'm always thinking of you, but if you want to talk, I'm here. I do too. And that's what, when we started this off, to say I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Okay, you've recognized their loss. Yes. And you've expressed that to them. And then let them. Mm-hmm. And. Maybe maybe to take that further is what your friend said. I'm sorry. I'm thinking about you. If you want to bring it up to me and talk about it, I'm more than willing to. Yes. But, but don't. don't. Yeah. And I think, too, sometimes women feel a little bit as – I think it's very – it's received well if some sort of – Whoa. Whoa, I don't know what that was. Like, oh, a train track's going through the air now. Yeah. But if some type of token of love is sent, whether it's a card, it doesn't even have to be sent 
you know, face to face handed. I think sometimes it's better when it's from a, from a distance, but a token of love. Like, you know, I remember my friends brought me flowers, um, brought me cupcakes, brought me, you know, just small tokens of like some things that you normally do after momentous grief experiences. Women always bring food. Yeah, they do. They always bring food. Just dr- yeah. My house blew up with food. <laughs> yes. I'm just like, what are we, we going to do? We don't know what else to do. And I don't, I just, I'd that love, and cleaning. I think you should, yes, and cleaning. I think you should really do a, a talk on um, all, the Western versus Eastern. Is this normal? Do all of us send food after grief? Is that one of our remedies? Uh, I think that I, would be pretty fascinating. I, to look at uh, I know the Jewish culture. Because I've been, I've been fascinated with that. I've been studying it for so much. Um, uh, they do food. Uh, in the Northwest, they bring food. So when I was there, but they don't. It wasn't like, and I didn't have anybody close to me die there, but it's not like everybody rushes over to your house and starts everything. Of course, my mom and my dad are both one of nine. So I had a lot more than I would have had there. Mm-hmm. Families just aren't that large there. Well, it's rare that you have families that large there, but... Um, it's, I always found myself when I, um, when another couple would go through a pregnancy loss, obviously we'd be there or would let them know, Hey, we're sorry. Uh, we've experienced this and we're, we're sorry. I would always try to talk to the guy because mm-hmm. I, I felt in my case, everybody just kind of pushes you to the side. Yes. Well, you're not the one that's lost this. Well, no, my body didn't, but 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 I did. So I always try to talk to the guys, and the things I always tell the guys is, look, I'm sorry. Uh, this was one of the most difficult things I ever faced as a man. Um, and if you ever have questions, you want to talk about it. And then we do what all men do: we suppress it, and we start talking about something totally, totally different. Totally different, yeah. Right. It's like I had a friend of mine who was. Well, I'll tell that story later, but. Um, that's how men are. We just, what I learned with raising a boy is that if I want to talk to my son about something, I don't sit down over hot chocolate and talk to him. We go outside, we start cutting the grass or we build a fence and we do stuff or we work on a project, whether it's just Tinker Toys or something, we work on a project, we do stuff. And then he opens up and starts talking. Right. So most guys, when they have their deep, intimate conversations it's usually at work mm-hmm. or it's usually they're doing something together they're out hunting mm-hmm. that's when they're having that you don't see them doing that oh let's just go sit down and yeah let's go have coffee and let's go have coffee and, and chat. chat yeah <laughs> yeah well women can do that women can do that yes and but- then maybe it's because women are more in some sense tribal mm-hmm. and i think that's what we've lost in a lot of our culture is that we don't have those tight communities and maybe you do here You've always you've grown up here, yes. and you've got your church community, you've got your family community. But when I lived in the West, it wasn't such a community spirit, and so it, you very much have that "I'm alone" mm-hmm. feeling, and that's why I think it's very important for women, especially, to find groups. Yes, whether they be a church group or a book group, you find a group mm-hmm. that you build that community with. What you've been able to do is take that, um, take that into the internet. There's another word I was looking for there, but you've been able to take that into where maybe I am out in Los Angeles and I just moved out here and I've experienced a pregnancy loss. I do have a group I can go to. Yes. Whereas geographically, 
we someone may live in New Zealand that's in the group. It's very far away, but the matter of the heart is what connects you. So yeah, because it's, and I think sometimes it's hard for women with busy lives yes. to find the time to sit together and devote that time to talk about a particular topic. Especially if I have a career and I already have kids. Yeah, if you have a career, you have kids. It is just, I mean, impossible. <laughs> and um, so that's just a place to go where you can join together. But yeah, as the little boy is um, screaming and all that other stuff. But I will tell you that my losses gave me such perspective where I was already a mom when I experienced my two losses. Oh, and, I didn't know that. Yeah, and I looked, my Titus, it was after the birth of my Titus, who's now eight, and I became a different mom, Where whereas before I was kind of very rigid and, oh, we only need to eat our vegetables, we need to do this, we need to do that. And after that, it was like, no, if we want to dance and watch Robin Hood, let's dance. Let's dance. It's, it's going to be okay. And it's given me the perspective that, yeah, my life's crazy right now, as evidenced by two of our, my smallest children running around during this podcast, but I can have such gratitude for them because I know if I went on the internet right now to my Facebook group, there would be a woman entering who has just lost what I have, you know, yeah. lost the dream of what I have. So the fact that there is a little bit of chaos in my life is nowhere near in comparison to what I know so many women are facing right now in the moment of loss. So grief gives you perspective, and I think that's really helped me kind of let go of some of well it goes back to what we said earlier is even though you've experienced this grief you don't know how they feel no i don't know how they feel no and no, I, can... I wasn't suicidal i don't know how that feels but i can't imagine right the, because i know how bad my heart hurts i can't even imagine taking it to that level and i know they just hurt so yeah so deeply so do you have women who aren't of faith that are part of this and how are they how are they receiving it we um they're probably yeah there sometimes are that women that come on um they're very they're mainly if they if they join our group because we do say you know we're up front with it we're a we're a group of christian women and the reason i say i segregated it like that is because when i was going through my losses i went on some of these support groups and they were non-denominational um and there, so there was women of all all faiths and um and non-faiths. And so when I would write something about my experience and my, um, my experiences, of course, includes my faith journey as well, I would sometimes be attacked, oh. you know, or have to defend my faith. Well, how could you believe, you know, so... How do you believe in God that yes. you do that? And at that time, you know what? I didn't need to do that. <laughs> I didn't need to try to defend my faith. I just needed to go to a place where people just understood. So I created the environment too as an answer to that. And I would hope that there's Buddhist women that have an environment they can go to. However you find go, your peace. However you find your peace, I hope there's a community for every woman. I'm not saying my way is I mean, obviously as a Christian, I do believe my way is It's working. It's, for you. it's, it's working. Yes, but I, d I don't think that everyone has to fall into our group. But right. I hope there's a group for everyone. Well, the thing that I the thing and this is probably where I started developing a lot of this ideology is when we had our loss is People would say the things, like I said earlier, that were stupid about, well, maybe God knew this or God did that. <clears throat> I came to a point in my, in my faith where I was like, God had nothing to do with this. Mm -hmm. God, in my mind, he created us and put certain rules and laws into our biology, into our chemistry, into our and sciences. Mm -hmm. And if those things aren't working, 
then these are the things that have. Yes. It's not that God caused this. No. It's not that God let you have your child and took my child mm-hmm. from me. It's not that God allowed your dad to live through a heart attack and mine not. No, God isn't out there moving these chess pieces no. around. It's, and I'm not saying that God's not involved in our life. I just don't think he's involved in that. In choosing that, yeah. And it says in the Bible very clearly we're going to have trials in life. You know, our life is not promised of perfection. What's oh. wrong, Beckham? You want some water? You want a carrot. Oh, well, come get a carrot. <laughs> yeah, come get a carrot. That's great. <laughs> you don't want chocolate? Oh, he done got him a carrot. Yeah, so I've exhausted all of my babysitters this past month because I've been gone to Texas and um, Florida and just different places. So, so no, thank this you is for <laughs> this is great. So you're showing up with. Are you still writing? I wish I was writing more. It seems like. Because I thought you said something about a children's book. Yes, yes. So I've written children's books. And I, that's where I first started thinking that I was going to be published in kind of the traditional publishing path was my children's book. And then God, um, I just feel like there were definite different plans for me. But I um, have written children's books, several children's books, and would love to see them published one day. So what type of children's books? Kind of just humorous little things. Yeah. I have written a children's book to go along with the Love Baby devotional, and we're going to be pitching that to publisher soon, which is just a, a, a picture book to help children what you know go through this to give them words for their grief and visualize what heaven might look like but i've also just written several fun books and one is about um was based upon my son who never slept as a child and when i was taught you know he was like eight months old still never sleeping i was like my goodness it's like you're fighting this like the power of a superhero well that just got my mind going and i left the, the room yeah and just started like writing down a story and it's called slumber fighter and it's about a little boy who just a normal kid but turns into a superhero every night as he fights these tiny z's that come around you know he's fighting slumber and it's more of just kind of a humorous tale upon you know not every bedtime experience is good night moon right you know not every there's Yes. You're watering the flowers with milk. <laughs> Wonderful. So I've written several, you know, kind of humorous little children's books and hope to get them off the ground one day. But I know the path, the path to publishing is so challenging, even though I've already published a book. This is So what's the challenge? I mean, you think once you've published, your publisher would say, okay, let's, let's do this one. Yeah, I think it just because it's a different market, because my book was a crit- Christian devotional, so we know I have success in the Christian devotional field now. We've got to take it over to the children's book field. And, you know, I just have to convince them that it's successful as well. So what do you need to convince them? I need, well, I've got the book. I have my agent. She'll be publishing it. But sadly, in the traditional publishing path, you need something called a platform. And when you write up a proposal to present a book, you have to write down, for example, how many social media followers you have, how many email addresses you have, that subscribe to your newsletter. You just have to have this ground game of social media or speaking just in order to show them that, yeah, people do pay attention. Yeah, and how can you do that when you have three kids? Exactly, because that's a full-time job in itself. So that's why, yes, that's a full-time job in itself. Just, and it is, um, has been amazing to me to watch the time and energy that what successful authors have to do. It like is. They really have to sit in front of the computer all the time and There's engage a reason an audience. Why we're single. 
It is. Yes. Yes. To be able There's to engage reason. with an audience. Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason that Hemingway ended up alone. Oh my gosh. And why he drank so much too, because the idea is, yeah. you know, I'm not an alcoholic by any means, but I could, I, wouldn't recommend I it. could see why some of these literary greats were because the ideas don't stop. Yeah, Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, you can't make the ideas stop, so you have to subdue them somehow. You have to quiet the voices, yeah. and then you got to let the demon back out. Yeah. It's just, uh, I was telling somebody the other day about Hemingway's books. It's the thing I like about Hemingway's books from a man is his heroes, it never turns out to be a good ending. No. <laughs> you're just like, oh. I mean, you're cheering for this guy. It sounds great, like the old man in the mm -hmm. sea. He's caught this fish. He's finally done it. And then it gets ate by sharks. <laughs> and he can't prove it to nobody. He was out there all alone. He's got this great story. And he's just, that's just how it is with a man sometimes. You, you have these great successes. And the next thing you know, it's just like, oh, it's gone. Well, it's gone. And, and yeah. it's, it's life. That's what yes. I liked about his writings. But um, so you do have a newsletter, though, right? I do. Actually, I don't really have a newsletter. Oh. <laughs> no. I. Um, I just don't like playing the game that publishers want you to play. So have you thought about self-publishing? Oh, no, I have. I have thought about self-publishing. But I know that I wouldn't put the energy behind selling books. So I will. I can play the game of getting newsletter subscribers and all of that and engaging with hey. an audience. And I'll fight hard to, to get it published. And and honestly, because I have an agent, there, you know, it's not going to the slush pile. Well, I started to say, I didn't know yeah. if your contract... When when I write the books and the proposals, then my agent looks at it and she offers suggestions and changes, and then we will start pitching it to publishers that she thinks would fit. And so it'll also just be if they're the children's market is. Um, See, I didn't know different. if your agent, if you're in contract, that you couldn't self-publish. No, I could if okay. I wanted to. Yeah, because you do have your website, you do have your platform, do. you do have the community yes. that. Although I know that they're very dedicated to uh, to pregnancy loss, it's still women. It's still women, and a lot of them have children. Right. And a lot of times when I write, I either write very grief-filled stories or I write real-life stories, which are just really resonate with women. And yeah. a lot of women say, when I'm having a bad day, sometimes I'll see what you've written because it makes me feel better about myself. I mean, I've got stories of eggs being under the rug, you know, just normal yeah. things. And I have so many of those stories and I've published them in different places. I just, with the advent of the third child, it's not been as easy for me to, yeah. to write. Although I really, it'll, I get get, it'll get easier as he gets a little bit older. But um, no, I'm so I'm hoping to see the book one day, some of these books, these children's books out there. And my agent wouldn't take them if she thought they were Right. Yeah. If she did, you know, she's, she's not, gonna, not in it to make she's, you yeah, feel good. Yeah. She's not. Yeah. She's not in it to make me feel good. No. She's not going to try to embarrass herself by sending out right. bad projects to publishers. It'll see if a public. It just fits as much with as she her. says, "I love you" and you're so no, great. No. She's really in it to. She's. She's she, in it to make money. Well, she's in it to make money and also and she, build a reputation. Build a reputation and to put out great books. To have right. her name behind great books. Yeah. So. Exactly. And that's what I don't think people need to realize. I mean, if you're trying to get an agent, you're trying to get published. You need to understand. They're not going to do this as a favor to you because they're going to go back to the same publisher and try to pitch another book at some yes. point. And they want to have a good reputation. Yes. You want to be that person that when they bring it to me, mm -hmm. I don't have to think about it. I'm going to publish it because yes. I trust them. So it's good that she's taken that. Oh, she is. She's wonderful. And that's the, the publishing company 
that took the Loved Baby Project on. They write Christian devotionals. So who was it? It's Broad Street Publishing. Okay. So she's really wants me to write honestly another devotional. <laughs> Based you, on farm stories, um, I've pitched her several ideas about that. She loves it, um, but I just want to first see if I could get a children's book published. But I'm I'm working on a book of devotionals geared more towards down on the farm life. Hmm, that m- reminds me of uh, I was I having not been in the ministry for so long. One of the things I miss is this. I miss talking. I miss mm-hmm. teaching about the things of faith. And I, one of the things I was thinking about, speaking of farm, was, you know, we have you get fences, mm-hmm. and you you get fences, and they're there to keep what yours in, and hopefully keep what doesn't belong out, mm-hmm. you know. And you have to maintain those fences, and you have to, and they're okay to have. And some fences you put gates in so people can come in and out. And I was thinking about that in a spiritual sense, and how we need to build fences around our life boundaries right yes. to keep our demons in yeah oh yeah and sometimes we put fences up to keep our neighbors out and there's some people in my life that i need to limit my access to so you know you put that fence up and but i have like my neighbor behind me we have a fence between us but we have a gate because i don't mind him coming over i don't mind going over to him but this neighbor over here, i don't have a gate because i don't know him and so you said devotional, and I was like, man. Yeah, no, there's... There's some, a fence one you could do. Yes. You can have that one. No, I'm not going to steal that from you, although <laughs> no. there may be. Yeah, there's... Steal that one. There's, there's so many analogies for life. So Just, I've always wanted to write, and I was telling somebody this the other day, that my problem is I don't mind banging out a quick article or, you know, a, a one or two page thing. Mm-hmm. That that I can sit down and just do. Um it's like when I wrote my dad's obituary, I just did it. Mm-hmm. It just flowed. To sit down and to write something long form like a book, mm-hmm. I don't know if I could do it. It's just, it's a, I mean, it's 50 small articles. You right. know, that's why you have to look at it. You just have to chunk things. Okay, first I'm going to get the idea and then I'm going to start maybe outlining what the book's like. And then you see the outline of the book and you realize that it is just small pieces all put together and you just have to keep that in perspective like okay this week my job's going to be to finish chapter five well corbin Payne, he was the podcast before this he's writing a book right now and he says he i think it's a thousand words a day mm-hmm. and he said that's about three pages uh double spaced and he said a thousand words a day he said if i can just do that and he said i don't always do it and some days I write 3,000. Mm-hmm. He said, but it's, you just got to write every day. Mm-hmm. And he's writing a novel. Oh. And uh, his sister is kind of like his editor. He'll send it to her. He said, because you think you said something on paper, and you, you know what you're saying because you, you can see it. Mm-hmm. He said, and then when she reads it, she doesn't see what's in my head. So she's able to say, well, I'm not getting this. Yes. He said, so it's, his sister's been a good sounding board. And he said, and she's, she's brutally honest. And, that, and you need that. Yes. I think as a writer, you have to not be afraid of that either. That's one thing writing teaches you. Yeah. Is to actually accept rejection because it's only going to help you be better. Well, I have. As been long a, as it's a person whose opinion you value. You value. Yeah. Well, there's, a, there's been a couple of people in my life that, because I had my blog and I was writing on it, you know, little articles. Mm-hmm all the time 
And uh, one friend reached out to me. She says, I love you. I love the things you're saying. Will you let me edit it first before you publish it? <laughs> There's like, always those people. <laughs> yeah, so that article I wrote for the newspaper, and I think he's undressed. The article I wrote for the... Oh, yeah, he is. Do you... Oh, oh yeah. Well, I tell you what, you <laughs> got to take care of this, Sarah. Uh, where can they find you? How do they follow okay, you? Okay, this is a great ending. This is going to be an article in itself. So where you can, yeah, that's great, Becca. They can find me online at allamericanmom.net where it's my website and you can find out about my book and you can see some farm writings. And I'm going to be dedicated after this month to start writing again to be more committed to that so um i've got some articles from like today parenting blog team and her view from home in different places or you you know if you're interested in this particular pregnancy loss devotional the easiest way to find it is to go on amazon and type in loved baby and type in my name sarah philpott p-h-i-l-p-o-t-t and you can easily find the book although it's at most major book sellers you can amazon's just easier for us now. I'll put a link to it. That'd be great. <laughs> I'll put a link and I'll make an affiliate link. Uh, I should have contacted you and said, hey, do we have a giveaway or something like that? But uh, We thank- can do any type of giveaway you want. Well, we'll just put this up and All let right, it happen. That sounds great. <laughs> thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure talking to you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>